0: Good morning. Good morning. I think you bring up my PowerPoint. When I was hearing Chen's testimony, I thought we were in a charismatic church. Somebody was speaking in tongues. <laughs> but, uh, thank you so much. Uh, today we're going to continue on with the series and the study of Mark. Uh, scholars believe that uh, Mark's gospel is uh, essentially Peter's account of of Jesus' life and ministry, and it was recorded through Mark's writing. Mark and uh, Peter were believed to have done ministry together in Rome, and so many scholars believe that Mark, when he wrote his gospel, had the Romans in mind. And the Romans like fast-moving stories, they don't like long, slow, drug-out stories. So Mark writes his gospel as it transitions from scene to scene, and Mark chapter 6 is no different, as there are seven different scenes that flow quickly, one right into another. And if you've ever had to preach a sermon, preaching a sermon on one chapter is a challenge because there's so much material, let alone a chapter that has seven different scenes to it. But today what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to focus in on a few of Jesus's Actions or verbs, as implied in the title. So if you want to pull out your Bible or uh, pull out your Bible app, um, this way you can update your Facebook and nobody would know the difference, Um, and follow along with me. And uh, I don't know, maybe it makes you guys nervous. I never bring my Bible up here, but uh, I assure you that everything I'm teaching you has come from the Bible. So I know when Pastor Tim gets up here, he has his Bible. So, you know, maybe it's a cultural thing, but anyway, just... uh, all right, uh, so I'm going to move right through this, so uh, we'll wait for the uh, bomber to fly over and uh, Anyway, all right. Mark chapter six, uh, starting at verse two. Uh, the setting is that Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth, and he is teaching." And that's the first verb. It says, "When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. So if you listen to that verse, it sounds like, wow, Jesus is really having a positive impact on his hometown crowd. But the tone changes very quickly in the next verse. They say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This verse gives us a glimpse into Jesus' life. It tells us that he was a carpenter, and it tells us that he had six brothers and sisters. I don't know who those six are, but I tried to find four guys and two girls, and they may be some rock group. I don't know who they are. But anyway, um, the implication is in verse 3 is there was nothing special about Jesus. There was nothing special about his family. Uh, If you read through the Bible, it doesn't talk about Jesus's father. Uh, The last time Jesus was like 12 years old. As an adult, we don't hear about Joseph. So Jesus' family may have been a charity case in uh, in Nazareth. So they may not have had the best of reputation. So when they thought about what Jesus was saying, uh, essentially what they did was they discredited him and they discounted his message. And many in his hometown didn't believe him and because of that, uh, he was not able to do many miracles there. And when you think about it, we discredit people today just like uh, happened to Jesus back in his day. Uh, for example, uh, as spouses, we do it to each other all the time. I mean, ladies, you know your husband's an idiot, right? <laughs> he, 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 doesn't, uh, he doesn't put his laundry away, or if he puts his laundry in the clothes hamper, it's inside out, so you have to turn it right side out, or he tracks his dirty shoes in or when he gets lost on the highway, he never asks for directions, right? So you think your husband's an idiot, but when he does tell you something meaningful, you've already been biased against him. You don't listen to him, and husbands, we do the same thing to our wives. They start jibber-jabbering about something we could care less about, and when they do say something important, we've already tuned out. Parents and Adults, uh, uh, parents and kids, have the same issue. Kids don't listen to the parents because they see the mother and dad squabbling and they know their parents aren't perfect so they don't listen to them. And parents don't listen to kids because, after all, what does a kid know? But yet, we've all been in situations in which we've seen children make the most powerful, simple statements or ask the most probing questions. If we could just focus on what people say and not be biased by their faults. We could all communicate a little bit better, and we could learn from one another because we can teach one another. And it's amazing you think that the people in Jesus' hometown didn't respond to the greatest teacher that ever walked on the face of the earth because they were more concerned about his credentials and his family. So the first point in your bulletin, is, it's about listening to others. It's about being taught by others. And it's very simple. And it's truth is truth, regardless of who is speaking or who is teaching. Truth is truth, regardless of who is speaking or who is teaching. And we just need to have the humility to recognize the truth when it's told to us. The next section of Mark, Jesus is with his disciples, and it says, that He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits, and he instructed them. So that's the verb I want to look at, is he instructed them. The first point before I move on is that he paired them up. Whenever you do ministry, you need to have a partner. Don't do it by yourself. Have a wingman have a co-leader, have somebody that you can lean on as you do ministry together. But the main point here in this little passage is that Jesus instructed them. Now, what's the difference between teaching and instructing? Am I parsing verbs too closely? Well, teaching is kind of what I'm doing. I'm throwing out information to a large crowd. Instructing here in this context is more of a one-on-one training session. And what... The word instruct comes from, it comes from the Greek word, a compound Greek word, which is two words put together, para-angelo. Para para means beside, angelo means to announce. So literally it means to announce beside, but the way that it's really translated is it's to hand an announcement from one to another or to transmit a message from one to another. So when Jesus was instructing his disciples, essentially what he was doing was one-on-one training or what we would call discipleship. Discipleship's an unfamiliar concept in our culture. We give it lip service in the church, and even in the business world, they talk about discipleship. They may call it a different word, mentoring, or knowledge transfer, or grooming, or whatever. But discipleship is when someone is talking to you personally, someone who is sharing their insights, sharing their wisdom, sharing their experiences, holding each other accountable, doing life together. It is a personal contact with someone. And discipleship is what Jesus did, and it was what his last command to his followers were. And Tim read the verse, and I'll read it again. It says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." And even though there's the word baptizing and teaching in there, the main, those are participles. The main verb is make disciples. That is the weight. That is the center, central focus of that passage is to make disciples. So I have a question for you. If, you have a, if there's one Christian and he, leads someone to, he or she leads someone to Christ and trains that person for a year... And then at the end of the year, those two each lead someone to Christ, and they disciple that person for a year, so there's now four, and then at the end of the next year, they all disciple one, so there's eight. How long would it take to reach the world for Christ? Or would you rather share Christ, lead 30 people to Christ every year? So which is a better way, and how long would it take? It would take only 33 years to reach the world for Christ. Whereas if you led 30 people to Christ every year, it would be just under 1,000 over 33 years. The church has been doing ministry wrong for most of the 2,000 year history. When we started having professional pastors and priests, we moved away from what Jesus told us to make disciples. Discipleship is meant for everyone. Ministry is meant for everyone, not just the paid professionals. If Jesus discipled others, so should we. Older men should mentor younger men. Older women should mentor younger women. Parents should mentor children, just as we heard in the commitment by the parents this morning. Not just for young children, but throughout their teenage years and even into the adult years, you can still mentor your children. In this section, uh, there's another point that I think is worth mentioning. Uh, after Jesus had instructed his disciples and paired them up and sent them out, Mark doesn't tell us where he sent them. Matthew does. Jesus sent them out to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons in their own cities, in their hometowns. Jesus, as we opened up Mark 6, was preaching and teaching in his hometown, and he directed his disciples to go to their hometowns. It's difficult to talk to your peers, but Jesus modeled that for his disciples and directed them to do the same. You see, we all have a unique sphere of influence. I meet and know people that you will never contact, and likewise you know and you meet people that I will never contact. And what we all need to realize is that unique sphere of influence is a unique mission field that God has given to each and every one of us. And it's kind of a heavy thought to think that we may be the only Christian that some of our family members, friends, neighbors, or coworkers will ever meet. So the point number two in your bulletin is we need to give serious thought to making disciples by introducing people that we know to Jesus. We need to make disciples by introducing people that we know to Jesus. The next section of Mark chapter 6, um, it kind of goes off on a little tangent. It talks about the execution of John the Baptist, uh, and I'll just say two things about that. If you read that text, it's very obvious that if you think with a part of your body other than your brain, nothing good will happen. And the second part is that uh, if you look in Matthew's account of that, uh, when Jesus got the report that, Ma- that uh, John the Baptist had been executed, you can tell it affected him because he wanted to get away to a secluded place. Mark doesn't tell us that, but Mark tells us that when uh, the disciples came back from their mission trip to their hometown, um, that Jesus said, uh, hey, let's uh, get away to rest. Let's get in the boat and go get away. So what I want to talk to the guys for a little bit here is just a direct talk is, uh, guys, I want you to tell your wives that you want to be like Jesus, all right? And what wife would not want her husband to be like Jesus? But what you need to tell her is that you need to tell her to get a boat to be like Jesus. It's right there in black and white, Mark six thirty-two. But don't settle for any boat. That's what I'm talking about. Forget about saving for retirement. Forget about putting tuition aside for the kids or the grandkids. Get a boat and be like Jesus. You can get away real quick with a boat like that. I probably can't afford the gas to run that thing. (laughs) That's probably the kind of boat that Jesus and the disciples had out in the Sea of Galilee. Um, Joking aside, um, this is what Jesus said to his disciples when they came back from their trip. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Now, what kind of a statement is that? Is that a suggestion? No. Is it an invitation? No. It's not even a statement of fact. What it is, is the words come and rest are in the imperative mood. It is a command. It's a command. Look me in the eye, it's a command. The Greek word for rest means to cease from labor so as to recover strength. To cease from labor, to recover strength. In other words, you've been working, you're tired, you need to recover. In ancient writings, the word was applied in an agricultural term to give the land rest. Why do you rest the land? You rest the land so that it will be more productive in the next season. Why do we rest so that we can be productive in the next season of our life? God created the Sabbath for mankind to rest. Most of us are exhausted because we don't rest. We feel the need to be continuously in motion, and we somehow rationalize that it's normal or necessary. There's no margin in our lives. Our schedules are packed and it is almost impossible to get together with anyone. There's no room in our lives for the unexpected or the unplanned to happen. The car breaks, hot water heater goes, someone gets sick. Jesus was on an important mission. He was on the most important mission of all, to save mankind. But all four of the gospel writers make a point of saying that Jesus rested. We are not better than Jesus He's our example. We need to be rested so that we can serve others. And I'm not talking about a -a once-a-year church retreat or a -a once-a-year two-week family vacation. I'm talking about a rest on a regular basis to recharge your batteries. And point number three is we need to get away to rest, to reflect and recharge and be recharged by the Holy Spirit so that we can serve others. We need to get away, to rest, reflect, and to be recharged by the Holy Spirit so that we can serve others. Resting is very important. And it's a command just recorded by Mark. The next section of John, or John, of Mark chapter six is Jesus feeds the five thousand. And in two weeks, when I talk about Mark chapter 8, he feeds a crowd of 4,000, and I'm going to do a little comparison between these two events, but I'm going to get to that in two weeks. But for now, the verse I want, or the verb I want you to think about is compassion. And it says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were sheep without a shepherd. The sequence is that Jesus taught the crowds in Nazareth, then he instructed his disciples, then he rested and now he's re-engaging the crowd. Dealing with people is demanding and exhausting. I believe that Jesus needed to prepare himself for the ministry that he was doing. We need to be prepared mentally, physically, and spiritually to minister to people. Why? Because our concern for people and our reason for doing ministry should come from the core of our being. It shouldn't be just an afterthought or just going through the motions. I'm going to teach you some Greek. Don't stand too close to me because I think I spit when I say this word. (laughs) Compassion in the Greek, it's splanchnizomai. I had to practice this so many times. Splanchnizomai. And it literally means to have the bowels yearn the bowels are moving, the bowels are your urine, it's from the guts. And compassion is actually a figurative use. To have pity, to love, or to have compassion is, is a figurative use, but the literal translation is the bowels yearn, because the ancients believed that the guts or the bowels were the seat or the source of love and pity. Given the meaning of this verb, Jesus was not just giving lip service to the state of the crowd when it said he had compassion on them. He cared deeply, and he felt for those people. This genuine feeling of concern is what Jesus did throughout his entire ministry, and it's in part why people were attracted to him. And what will draw people to Christ is if we are deeply concerned about them. I had a professor in seminary, Charles Zimmerman, who was known for his quote, it says, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You can quote the Bible left and right. You can have all the logical arguments as to why there is a God and why Jesus is is God and, and why Christianity is superior to the true way. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. But this type of involvement in people's life is gonna cost us time, energy, and money. And we need to be prepared to impart this kind of concern and love for people. And again, that's why we need to be rested and recharged and relying on the Holy Spirit to do this. So the last point in your bulletin is, it's a question, and that is, are we willing to love people deeply? Like Jesus did? Are we willing to love people from the gut, from the core of our being, like Jesus did? The last section of Mark, I'm going to talk about uh, the one more verb. Um, After Jesus fed the 5,000, he told the disciples to get in their speedboat and go to the other side of the lake. It makes you wonder, as I was thinking through this, you know, when he told them to go to the other side, are like, okay, Jesus, how are we going to hook back up with you again? He doesn't tell them, he just says go. So they hop in a boat, go to the, head to the other side. Jesus remained to dismiss the crowd and, and to pray. And while the disciples were on the way to the other side, uh, they got caught up in a storm. And uh, this is the verb, It's this is, and Jesus came to them. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. It scared the snot out of them. That's a highly theological term. But it had an impact. Jesus' miracle of walking on the water revealed to them finally, it finally got through to them, that Jesus was God. And I believe I'd shared this before uh, with you. If any Jew is familiar with the writings of Moses, especially Genesis, I mean, it's Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and it says the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. The disciples saw Jesus moving over the surface of the water, and that should have clicked in their mind. I believe that it did, that Jesus was God. Mark tells us that even after they saw Jesus feed the 5,000, what a phenomenal miracle that was, it still didn't get through to them who Jesus was. But this got through to them. And we can see this in John chapter 6. Right after Jesus walked on the water, they got to the other side. Jesus was speaking to a crowd. He was challenging them. He He was really laying it out for them what it meant to follow him. He said, do you still want to follow me? He turned to the disciples, do you still want to follow me? A lot of the crowd left. So what were the disciples going to do? Well, Peter, in one of his more brilliant moments, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This was right after Jesus walked on the water. We know it got through to them. You see, at some point in our lives, Jesus comes to us to reveal himself to us. It may come in many different forms. It could be reading the scriptures, hearing a sermon, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, evangelist. Maybe it's a gospel tract. Maybe it's the birth of a child. Many people say that's a spiritual experience that makes them really think about the meaning of life. Sometimes God comes to us through the wonders of nature, or maybe even through the tragedy of a death or a significant loss. Maybe he simply comes to us through the guilt of our own sins. God is very creative in how he reaches people. It's his will that no one should perish. He does not want anybody to be eternally separated from him. But he gives us a choice to trust him or not. If we believe in him, like John's gospel says, he gives us the right to become his children. We get to enter into his forever family. It's a free gift. God is gracious, and we can only receive this gift by placing our full faith and reliance in Jesus. This gift cannot be earned. It can only be received through faith. And if you've never chosen to trust in Jesus, I encourage you to do so. And if you'd like to talk to me more about that after that, the service today, I would love to do that. As believers, Jesus comes to us through his Holy Spirit, whose purpose is to teach us convict us and to lead us in the truth and once he's the holy spirit has revealed these truths to us we have a choice of how we're going to respond are we going to listen to jesus teachings are we going to be involved in discipleship are we going to choose to rest are we going to choose to have compassion for others And quite simply, are we going to choose to trust him with our day-to-day lives? The choices are ours to make. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. We thank you.